What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Another awesome episode we got here. Succession Season 4, John Wick Chapter 4, Jimin from BTS, debut solo album, Dungeons and Dragons, which I got to catch early with one of those early screenings, as well as Lana Del Rey's ninth album, uh, Ocean Boulevard, etc., etc., long title. So yeah, a bunch of good stuff. Let me know what's good. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Jimin's debut album, Face. The fourth BTS member to release a solo project since BTS, of course, announced their temporary hiatus and break for solo activities and the mandatory Korean military service. We got the J-Hope album, we got the Jin single, we got the RM album, which have been reviewed on the show. Now we got the Jimin album, Jimin's first solo project of any kind. And this was a release, you know, of all the BTS solo albums to come. This was one I was anticipating because Jimin has a really unique voice and has always stood out as a vocalist within BTS, really obviously for his high register. He just stands out as someone who can really hit those high notes. That boy can sing. You know, I think to me, my, my favorite moment is probably his contributions to On from Map of the Soul 7. I think he sounds great on that, but of course, he's well lauded on other songs like Black Swan, for example. He has a really noticeable part of the vocals on BTS songs and carries and helps carry many of the best BTS songs. I think people know this, BTS fans know this. So hearing a Jimin record would be really exciting before uh, he assumingly begins his military service soon as well. I'd imagine that's going to start this year. Uh, you know, in the lead up to this, we got, I think, a real treat as well with the solo song from Big Bang member uh, Taeyang, Vibe, featuring Jimin. I think Jimin sounds really strong and fits that song really well, Which and, and that really livened my anticipation for the Jimin solo record, which we just got, Face, and my thing, my issue with this album is it's just so short. This Jimin album, Face, it's really more of an EP. It's 20 minutes long, six tracks, but it features Light Crazy and Light Crazy English versions, so that's really one track, and it also features an interlude. So it's really only four unique tracks. And yes, Jimin has a solo song here or there that's come out in the past, like Wings and uh, Promise, I believe it was. Like, he's had some material out, but, man, I was really hoping this would be a bigger impression as a release because I think the stuff that is here is pretty good and pretty intriguing, and that's what makes you just really wish you were getting more. You know, the the RM album was uh, really fully formed, and the J-Hope album was about the same length but featured more songs, you know. I, I was just a bit disappointed in, in the brevity of Face. But for what we get, I do think... It's intriguing, and that just, I think, speaks to Jimin as a vocalist. Again, you know, starting off, you have Face Off, which was co-written by RM. Uh, you have just, a, I think, a really lively beat, which sounds nice, and then a, a really catchy chorus that Jimin, uh, I think, carries really awesomely. Then you have the end of the track, which I don't really care for all that much. It's like a bunch of vignettes, I guess, whatever. You're not going to listen to it again. Uh, then track three is the best song on the album, Light Crazy which is a really engaging synth-pop track. The beat is awesome. Those snares are bouncing. Uh, Jimin sounds awesome on that, but just it's a really poppy, uh, uh, lively track. It sounds great. Actually inspired by the film of the same name with Jennifer Lawrence and Anton Yelkin from, I think, 2011. You hear those like vocal samples from uh, the movie 
in there. Kind of a fun deep cut in terms of uh, taking inspiration. Uh, the next song, Alone, you know, that that's Jimin really slowing it down. Perhaps more what you'd expect of his past work, his past solo efforts, because as someone who's like a singer first, um, in terms of how he contributes vocally, the ballady stuff is more what you expect from him, and that's like the closest you get on face with Alone. Uh, then we have Set Me Free Part 2, which was the lead single for this album, has a music video out. And that is, I think, a really interesting song because it features something really Jim has never done before, which is like this heavy, heavy auto-tune and basically doing rapping. You know, when we think of rapping in BTS, we, of course, think of RM and Suga and J-Hope. There isn't really a lot of room for a fourth rapper in BTS, and Jimin trying it out, more or less, for the first time publicly on a song like this, I think is interesting. I don't know how, su- how su- I don't know how successful it is, just because for someone with such a strong voice, it's disappointing to hear it like drowned in autotune. I think if this album was a bit longer, it would have supported these kind of like fun attempts at doing something new better. But because it's so short and so brief, it stands out more that this is kind of a um, uh, Jimin trying something new, which is a bit more obvious that it's like a bit out of place to me. Um, Still kind of cool, though. And I think the horn production on that is really fun. And the the chorus from Jimin is probably the best part about this song. Like setting aside the rap verse, like the chorus, I think is very catchy, um, and I and I do enjoy it. Um, but yeah, and then you you have the light crazy English version. Like I said, I think light crazy is a like a huge bop, honestly. And perhaps that English version is, you know, following in the recent K-pop trend of version English versions of of, of singles coming out, it has hit potential for sure. You know, it has all those ingredients, and perhaps the English version of it is uh, just what's needed for this song to take off. Not, of course, that you need to create these English versions. It's a bit of a, I think, frustrating uh, compromise a lot of K-pop artists are doing these days, which is re-releasing uh, English versions of a song or putting it out at, like Jimin did, like at the same time. You know, I just the, the comp- compromise I don't think is actually needed, given how global and big and accepted K-pop is everywhere. <laughs> especially in the West now too. So, I mean, it doesn't bother me, but it just, I think it's unnecessary. And I would have liked it, a different track to be on this album that's really only four songs. So, all in all, you know, I think there is a fair amount to recommend about those four songs, but man, I just wish there was more, you know? Um, And I think everyone does. I think it's kind of obvious. It's kind of an agreement, but you know, Jimin, for someone who kind of came to BTS, came to the K-pop industry as a dancer first and not really a singer, to see how far he's come as someone who now is really recognized for his voice and how unique it is and impressive it is. I mean, hats off to him. That's a really impressive thing that, that he's accomplished, you know, in this BTS journey. And yeah, just hoping for more more solo work when we get it. Uh, but who knows if that's coming soon before he goes off to do military service. Not sure. But yeah, let me know. How did you feel about this Jimin record? How would you compare it to the other BTS solo releases we've got in the last year or so? And what do you want to hear next from Jimin? And for more K-pop reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Lana Del Rey's ninth album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? Once again, Lana giving us an exceedingly long title, as she's done before. Uh, long titles, long track titles, this is her thing. 
And yeah, it's been a little bit since we got a Lana record. Of course, Lana gave us two albums in 2021. Took off last year. Back here once again. Coming off the feature of Taylor Swift's Midnight. So Lana's been around. You can look at the Spotify numbers. People are streaming it. Streaming the song with Taylor. And, you know, I wasn't super high on chemtrails. I didn't really care for Blue Bannisters at all. And that really disappointed me because I absolutely love Norman fucking Rockwell from 2019, the album that preceded those two. So I didn't really know what to expect going into album nine here. You know, Lana's been at it a long time and she's had many different eras in her career, both in terms of her public persona and the things she does outside of music and things she says and controversies, things like that. But also like just simply like with the music, her like sonic choices and her production stylings have really evolved over time. And I I thought Norman fucking Rockwell really shined a light on Lionel Ray's storytelling and put that in an amazing light and really shined a light on that songwriting. And then Chemtrails and Blue Bannisters kind of took me out of it again because I just wasn't into the, you know, kind of Americana, like, folk genre choices that she had kind of gravitated towards with that, you know. Uh, Blue Bannisters was the first album in a while she hadn't done anything with Jack Antonoff. She's back with Jack on Ocean Boulevard here. He's on the majority of the songs on the producing side of things. And overall, I think Ocean Boulevard does a good job at getting back to, I think, those Lana strengths. And also, interestingly, I think, brings even further back in Lana's past out once again. That would be really the, the back half, back third of Ocean Boulevard. We hear trap production again. Of course, trap production was... A huge, you know, kind of controversy from Lana's, like, you know, mid-career with stuff like Lust for Life. You know, Lana kind of, like, bringing in hip-hop in a confusing way. But to kind of bring Trap in uh, on the production side again, I think it works a lot better this time around. Comes off at least a little bit more genuinely. So that, that, that was kind of interesting to me. And overall, I think this is a lot... Um, it's a smoother listen, I think, than, like, the last two records. And I definitely like Ocean Boulevard more than the last two. Um you know, I think just plainly, like, Lana does a really good job, again, at showcasing her songwriting talents. I think she's really come into her own with that. And even if I have genre and production choices of hers that I like more than others, the songwriting has definitely leveled up since Norman fucking Rockwell really has, like, a new point in her career. So that, that thankfully, is still there. And... I think there's, you know, just a few moments, though, on this album that really stood out to me. I thought, overall, you know, it's a long album. It's 16 songs, an hour, 17 minutes. These, a lot of these tracks are quite long. There's also a few interludes. Like, you have the uh, Judah Smith interlude, which is like a preacher sermon, just straight up. Don't know if we necessarily need that uh, TBH, but the track that precedes that is one of the lead singles, A&W, uh, which was previously titled American Horror. I think that is a really strong song like straight up that one the strings on that sound amazing and just like the lyrics you know like like lana kind of talking about like aging women she's not talking about herself but she might as well could be you know the line about still being a side piece at age 33 you know i think that that's a really i think engaging piece of songwriting from lana and that song is been pretty successful as a single so it's it's i think right in line with kind of what you want 
from her as a storyteller. Um, I thought Kintsugi was pretty strong as well. And then the back half really started to grab me. Like, I thought Father John Misty sounded great with Lana on Let the Light In. And then my favorite song on the album will be Margaret featuring Bleachers. Bleachers, of course, is Jack Antonoff. And that is a song that, you know, L- Lana has written songs and performed songs that aren't about her before. And she kind of does that a step further with Margaret because Margaret is about Jack, you know, her close friend and producer, but also about Jack's life, specifically his marriage to Margaret Qualley, the actor, hence the titular Margaret here. And I think that song just, the sweeping piano of it all, I think it's like really epic, you know, and the vocal line, like the when you know you know part, you start to get Jack singing with Lana, repeating that refrain. I think it sounds incredible. And just kind of like a cool concept from Lana to kind of think kind of take that further. I think that one is really effective. You know, the last track, you have a Taco Truck XVB that um kind of obviously uh, is flipping the original version of Lana's song Venice Bitch from uh, Norman fucking Rockwell. I think that sounds really cool. You know, kind of, again, like I said, bringing in Trap into the vibe there. Definitely different. You have the Tommy Genesis sample on Peppers, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think ultimately, like, if you're a Lana Del Rey fan, I think this does a really good job of giving you what you want because at the end of the day, Lana as a singer has such a texture to her voice and she's able, I think, to communicate a lot with how she sings. And when the production is more, I think, lively and agreeable, at least to me, on an album like Ocean Boulevard, it starts to really shine. Do I think this is as strong as Norman fucking Rockwell? No, I do not. But I hold that album in such high esteem that I shouldn't really hold that against her other records. But overall, I think this is definitely a step back into the direction that I'm more interested in from her. And I do think it's pretty inspired to hear her bring in Trap in a... Just, just straight up just do it again after you know not doing it at all and the fact that her last album was so folky to have trap on the subsequent album it kind of shows you like the chameleon that she can be with her choices but she's always still able to back it up with the songwriting and with the unique texture of her voice so an interesting figure in pop as i think everyone knows at this point but yeah i think for for the ninth album from lon del rey it's hard to be too critical of this one i think i thought it was pretty enjoyable but let me know how'd you feel about this you know we've got a lot of lana the last few years how would you compare this to the past few albums did you like her choices on this and for more music reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of dungeons and dragons honor among thieves the new action comedy film from jonathan goldstein and john francis daly starring chris pine and Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith, and Roger Jean Page, and Hugh Grant. Man, this was a really nice, pleasant time. And I think clearly exceeded expectations for a Dungeons & Dragons film. You know, this had a really warm reception out of South by Southwest recently. And I think just generally, the sentiment is pretty strong and, and consistent that Dungeons & Dragons, the film, exceeded expectations. This is a really fun time and pretty succinct you know action comedy film i think what the the reason the movie works is that it doesn't take itself too seriously it's not and, and on top of that 
it's almost like a bit of like a Marvel pastiche, which I guess you could understand from Goldstein and Francis Staley having been Spider-Man Homecoming co-writers, that the like kind of reverent self reverence for the source material and not being afraid to be lighter and ha- take things in jest and have a bit of a comedic tone. I think it really works because it's not the type of comedy that's like degrading the audience or the, or, or the storytelling of the film by like making fun of itself, but more so the fact that it's just kind of winking and like happy to, to be light lighter in tone, I guess you could say. So the result is that it's just kind of a, you know, swashbuckling good time. You know, it's like as it's an adventure film. Like it's just, I think, really pleasant. All the actors seem to be really committed. The uh, humor and tone, I think, is spot on. And also, the CGI is actually like incredibly strong. You know, this is a movie that had so many ways for it to go wrong. You know, adapting, of course, the famous role-playing tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons. Like, it's not something that necessarily lends itself to like amazing. I think adaptation. Like I know there's D and D books, but like they were never going to get like in the weeds with D and D lore with this kind of movie. So the fact that they're able to make kind of like a four quadrants for everyone, loose in quotes adaptation of D and D, but actually what it is is it's just kind of like an action comedy that happens to be called Dungeons and Dragons. I think they really really killed it all the way around. So I I had a really pleasant time with this one, to be honest. Um, and I think there's there's some really smart choices they make with Dungeons and Dragons. And right off the bat, you get introduced to Chris Pine's character, and uh, you know Chris Pine's character, uh, Edgen, he is telling this like parole board basically uh, what's happened to him recently and pleading for his uh, freedom. And it's just a really I think witty way to both give you the movie's tone right away and give you Chris Pine's like charisma in your face as we we love. Chris Pine, of course, the best Hollywood Chris. But that scene is really smart and intelligent exposition for the audience. Really grounds you in the world, tells you just enough of what you need to know, and then keeps it moving. Is this a world that is completely fleshed out and like you totally understand how everything works? No. Are there tons of very familiar fantasy tropes in terms of like what these character archetypes are and what what these uh, you know fantasy people are in terms of you know wizards and paladins and bards and druids and all that stuff dark wizards no you know that you know the beats but it's okay because i think the movie it just tells it and i think in a really coherent way and doesn't get too in the weeds but also isn't afraid to again keep it like keep it moving and uh just i think kind of enjoy itself there's a really awesome cameo from a big time actor who which i won't spoil but i thought was really nice i did not know that was coming and in general like I think it's a great use of Chris Pine's talents. He's a very charismatic guy, uh, but he's still very much a leading man, and he does a really great job here. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez is, of course, very credible and experienced as an action star, one of the best action stars we have, and she is uh, really great as Holga. Her and Chris Pine have amazing amazing chemistry, and it goes really well. You know, Justice Smith as the kind of like uh, prepubescent, um, finding himself type of a sorcerer character I think Justice Smith really smashed it, honestly. You know, he's had a lot of like high profile roles recently and you know, to mix success, especially with the movies. But I think this is one of the one of if not his best like roles in an ensemble for sure. I thought Justice Smith really handled this well 
and the arc that his character goes on, his character Simon, I think is quite satisfying. Uh, also, I think Reggie John Page as the uh, the paladin, he also I think really nails it. You know, like the tone, his um, back and forth with Pine when they encounter each other, all that really works. But honestly, like Reggie John Page post Bridgerton, you know, we still been waiting to see what that was going to be. And I actually did not think he was very good. He was, I thought he was miscast in The Gray Man last year. But this is, I think, a much better use of his talents where you have his obvious, you know, handsomeness, his action chops as a very, you know, fit guy. But I think he's able to kind of play this um, kind of matter-of-fact character really well. It's, I suppose you could draw some parallels to, like, Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, again, more Marvel inspiration. But I think it really works, and, like, the tone fits right in to the rest of the tone you get. Um, Hugh Grant, really continuing the uh, late-career choices and renaissance that he's been doing uh seemed to really be enjoying himself kind of chewing on the scenery i think he's uh really really great um who i wasn't really super familiar with was with was sophia lillis as doric the druid i've seen her in some stuff but i thought she was pretty fun as well like i said i think the the, the cgi is really nice which lends itself to some really fun set pieces you know everything with the um the underground world where they encounter the very fat dragon like it's fun. It kind of winks at itself, kind of plays with physics, but it always kind of feels like grounded as far as, you know, fancy storytelling can be like nothing was super outlandish, you know? Um, and, and that was really fun. And obviously this is kind of like, it's, it, it's, it's nothing super like descript or brand new at all, but I think it's just really tight. And I guess kind of reminiscent of what Daly and Goldstein did last time they directed a movie together, which would be game night from 2018. That was just a really tight, intelligent, funny comedy film. You know, sometimes just being good at what it is, is good enough. And I think this is just a fun action adventure fantasy film. You know, it, I think it's really confident and capable when, with what it is. And when you get like really good talent involved and that they have all bought in the way these actors have, I think what you get is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which is probably the biggest high profile surprise we've got. Um, in 2023 thus far in terms of big movie releases. You know, I think this is something that if this was a disaster and this flopped, that would not have surprised anyone. And, you know, we, we'll still wait and see if this is going to be successful at the box office. I was lucky to catch a early screening, which they've done the past two weekends, actually, as I think kind of a interesting way to promote this movie and get that word out there. But uh, this is our capper of the stacked March month we've had in the movies. But I think it was really successful efforts i'll be rooting for this movie to perform because i think it um it's definitely worthy but let me know once you've seen it uh how'd you like dungeons and dragons did it surprise you like it surprised me and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of john wick chapter four the latest entry in the john wick franchise starring keanu reeves chat Zahelski, back once again the director's chair straight up this is the best john wick movie i saw no way going in that this would be the case, you know, almost three hour runtime. John Wick 3 was fun, but certainly kind of bogged down in its mythology. I was like, there's no way they're going to be able to talk John Wick Chapter 2 with 4. And they did. John Wick Chapter 4 is spectacular, really exceeded my expectations. And I think this is just kind of an incredible film, honestly. Um, it's riveting, it's an amazing theater experience. It 
really knows exactly what it is, giving you spectacular set pieces, really funny humor, amazing use of all its talent. It's a travel movie as well. It's kind of everything I wanted it to be. It has a spectacular ending as well. Man, I think John Wick Chapter 4 is really great, really awesome, and must be seen. So I'm going to spoil the shit out of this movie, but um, just know that I think it's really great. So let's go in. Full spoilers here. So I think John Chapter 4, you know, well, I'm going to talk about the ending at the end here. But like the reason I think this movie is so successful is it's just straight up the talent with this with this film is just so evident, right? Like Stahelski, his bona fides are so established as an action filmmaker at this point that you just have, I think, three like elite set pieces that form this whole movie really two of them and then one really good one i would say the opening set piece in japan in osaka at the uh continental in osaka that w- that's a absolutely riveting riveting scene it goes on for a while it's amazing for many reasons i'm gonna get into all that act two i think is perhaps the weakest or less least great uh part of the film we go to berlin but you still get you know that berlin club set piece featuring scott atkins in the fat suit Scott atkins of course an action legend in his own right um that 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 was still quite good the way it ended and then of course act three you know i thought there was no way that john chapter four could top how phenomenal the osaka stuff was and it managed to at least match that greatness with everything you get in act three which of course is paris playing all the paris hits showing you all the locations the moulin rouge the sacre coeur the arc de triumph in an amazing scene you know i thought mission impossible fallout not that recently played the Paris hits too, but John Wick was like, "Yeah, we can do that," and it's incredible. So I think you have between the Paris stuff and the Osaka stuff, it's just so so good. And then even like the like the like, like I said, like the fact that everything in Berlin is by far the least good stuff in the movie, and it's still like so badass. I think it just really speaks to how stacked this film is with with what it's good at. So let's just go like let's just go into all the stuff right away. So. You know, like I said, with John with Chapter 3, the mythology is, like, pretty bogged down. And, like, this, the movie in Chapter 4 here kind of acknowledges that, like, John's, like, motivations and his path for vengeance against the high table, it's, like, kind of, like, ill-defined. And it's, like, lacking an endgame. He's literally called out on this in the film. And despite all that, despite the fact that the high table and their arcane rules and the backstory and all that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when put under the microscope, it doesn't fucking matter. Did it matter a little bit in chapter three? Yeah, kind of. That, that was my biggest hangout with chapter three, which I still enjoyed, obviously. But chapter four, it doesn't matter at all. So before you know it, uh, we leave New York and we get to uh, Osaka. And you get, of course, uh, Hiroyuki Sanada as the head of the Continental in Osaka. You know, J- Japan acting legend, as he, as we know. His daughter, the concierge at that Continental, is played by Rina Sawayama, the pop star. I'm a huge Rina fan. I've reviewed her albums here. I've seen her in concert, reviewed that show too. I knew she was in the film. I didn't know to what extent her role was. And it was a bigger role than I expected, her role as Akira. And I, she was way better than I thought she would be. I was really impressed, honestly, both with her acting and her action chops. And the post credit scene suggests that she'll be involved in the franchise moving forward. I think she should be a shoo-in for the Onda Armas ballerina spinoff. I think that's like a no-brainer. I thought Rena was really awesome. Um, you know, shout out to Bow and Arrow there. But Osaka scene also uh, gives you 
the introduction to the abilities of Kane, played by uh, Donnie Yen. John Wick, adding Donnie Yen, of course, the Chinese film legend that he is, adding Donnie Yen is, as Zach Harper said on Twitter, like giving steroids to Barry Bonds in the late 1990s. Donnie Yen is a really talented actor who is very picky with the Hollywood roles he chooses. He largely doesn't work in Hollywood all that often. You know, think of Rogue One or Triple X2. Like, it's few and far between, especially recently. But they got him in John Wick with a fully formed role. And Yen has talked at length about how he was able to kind of craft this character and make it less of a stereotype and just more interesting and hats off to him because everything he suggested clearly worked i thought the kane character was phenomenal and you get introduction to him uh his abilities in osaka where you have that kitchen scene where you learn how he's a fighter despite being blind you know very much a play on the classic you know blind uh warrior trope you know like the zaitochi trope um but yen really imbues him with so much i think charisma and obvious action ability but also like a lot of pathos too like this is a really i think effective john wick at kind of communicating i think character emotions despite the fact that john wick has never been a character that really speaks all that much or really needs to speak all that much you know so that osaka scene um and like, like right off the bat like the, the way it's, it comes to its conclusion where you have uh koji haruki sonata's character fighting kane fighting donnie yen and you know that Koji's gonna die, and you feel like shit. Someone you've just met in this movie, and you're 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 bummed that Koji's gonna die, and you think, oh, is he gonna, is he gonna kill Kira too? Like you you feel for that, and like you're really rooting for them, right? And I think that was just a really phenomenal opening set piece. You know, uh, Keanu fighting in like the glass rooms, and I think the, the coherence of the action in, in these movies again, this remains so effective because <laughs> I think the uh, the Kevlar suits, the fact that you can make these guys like semi-bulletproof obviously requires some leaps in logic, but like it makes the action really fluid. You know, watching people beat the shit out of each other and keep shooting and shooting each other before it finally, someone finally goes down, you know. Okay, and that first showdown between Kane and uh, John uh, really satisfying as well. And, you know, how we get Kane, of course, is that he's kind of pulled out of retirement by the new arch villain of this film, which would be the Marquis, played by Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård knows the assignment, really chewing on the scenery, playing it up as a new high table villain. I thought he was really great. Um, you know, Act Two, like I said, I think it's the least interesting act. You know, the stuff with like John's family and like needing needing them to untear his his paper so he can officially make this challenge to the high table, blah, blah, blah. Like, all that shit doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's like, oh, there's this new high table rule that I didn't know about until Winston, Ian McShane's character, until Winston just told me and told John. Okay, fine. Like, you, you roll with it. No one cares. It's fine. But it's just, it's a bit confusing, right? But getting that set piece at, like, the club where, of course, we meet Kane again. John's there, obviously. And we have Mr. Nobody, who I'll get to in a second. Having them all reconverge again in Act Two after converging after converging in Act One, all uh, really works. And then you have this amazing, like, long fight with Scott Adkins in this fat suit, you know, all, all prostheticed up. And Scott Adkins, 
he's not the most famous action actor, but like he is among the best action performers. And the fact that I think Wick was able to add Scott Adkins and add Donnie Yen to its franchise um, roster the way it did in this film, we're really lacking only a few of like the action greats of the recent times right now. Like I think of the rate actors, right? Like Eco Wise and Joe Taslim. They haven't been in the John Wick movies yet. But other than them, like I think we've hit just about everyone, you know, when you think about the other John Wicks as well. But I really liked how that set piece end. It's really funny too watching like people on Molly or whatever dancing in the club as John is moving through the the strobes and kicking the shit out of people, as, as he often does. Really enjoyable. But I mentioned Mr. Nobody, who is another new character, played by probably the least uh, high-profile actor in the cast, which would be Shamir Anderson, who I wasn't super familiar with coming in. He plays this kind of tracker character who is interested in taking down John for the bounty, but the bounty's not high enough yet, so he'll maybe think, think on that a little bit. Um, he has a dog that works with him. A dog, like John Wick once had a dog. <laughs> you might know where this is going. Um, I actually think the way they play that off with the dog, really effective, honestly, after the journey you've been, after the journey John's been been with. I think the way that Mr. Nobody kind of moves through the story is really enjoyable. And his, um, you know, antagonism to someone he's like begrudgingly working with, the way he interacts with the Marquis, that also really works as well. Um, and then Act 3, you know, you go to Paris and... You know, I immediately thought of Mission Impossible Fallout because all, all the Paris stuff there, and you see a lot of familiar beats. But before you know it, we have this absolutely bonkers Arc de Triomphe set piece where John is literally fighting amidst the traffic of the Arc. Bonkers stuff, man. It's so crazy. And just kind of watching John rush through Paris to make his final duel with the Marquis on time. It's incredible. You get to the Sacre Coeur, which is, of course, a great backdrop for anything in the movie. Um, and they didn't film there. You can tell it's a it's a back lot, but it looks good enough. But when we so close and you get to these stairs to get to the Sacre Coeur and watching John fight a bunch of French goons as Justice's 2007 song Genesis starts pulsing. What more do you want from this franchise? What more do you want from Keanu Reeves? What more can he do from you? He's 58 years old. Like, it's incredible that this is what he's up to still. And <laughs> I, I just thought it was, like, it, 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 incredible stuff, honestly. Like, it, and the way it builds up to this, like, final duel with Kane. Like, you, you get really, I think, attached to Kane with just a few scenes. The way Kane comes back once again on the stairs, helping John make the duel on time. Then they have to fight each other. Uh, Kane, of course, fighting on the Marquis' behalf. Like all this, I think, just works so so well. Um, the dramatic stakes, like I'm surprised how effective they are, honestly. And yeah, like it, it's just kind of insane how uh, how coherent everything manages to be, despite the fact that I think a lot of the lore of the franchise is not very coherent. And it's just crazy how much that doesn't matter at all. Um, so yeah, I mean. Shout out Donnie Yen again. Like I thought, everything with the way Kane and everything ends with Kane is is incredible, um, and you know, it sets you up with this ending with John after seemingly not being out of it. You know, I was like, oh, he's gonna have to kill Kane. This sucks. I don't want Kane to die. Kane doesn't die. 
oh, but John's going to die. Fuck. Then again, it's kind of an amazing way to end this franchise. Now, it's clear that there's no guarantee that John is actually dead, of course. Killing the Marquis, surviving the duel as him and Kane barely shoot each other, but kind of collapsing on the steps of the Sacred Core after being shot and fucked up and, you know, meeting his end here. It is convincing enough as an ending, right? But let's not forget that earlier in the film, you have the Bowery King, Lauren Fishburne's character, acknowledging that he has a fake gravestone, you know? And John could easily have a fake gravestone now. And on the other hand, I think it's a really effective end for the John Wick character. The John Wick arc is, I think it's really landed, you know, the full circle moment of him saving Mr. Nobody's dog in this movie, like really I thought wrapped it up together. And John kind of, despite the fact that he's still a man of few words, coming to grips with uh, his, his quarrel against the high table and, and life is probably at its end. All that's like really good. And the, the issue is that it's kind of at odds with the fact that the John Wick franchise has never been more popular or more successful. The biggest global launch, the biggest opening weekend of the franchise to date is chapter four. And yet is, is John Wick killed off? I think what's going to happen is at least they'll make the ballerina spinoff first with Ana de Armas, hopefully Rina Sawayama's in that too. And they'll reconsider what's going on. Keanu will be in his 60s by the time they would make another John Wick. You know? Um, can you make more of these movies and call them John Wick if John Wick's dead? I don't know. It's um, it's a bit of a quandary. It sounds like Lionsgate and Stahelski and Keanu will reconsider this uh, in time. It sounds like Stahelski and Keanu are happy to let this breathe for a bit, though Stahelski has not directed a non-John Wick movie yet. Um, and he's, he's been attached to many projects, and I'm sure he'd be happy to spread his wings elsewhere for a while. Can't blame him. And Keanu, too. You know, Keanu really had this late career second or third act renaissance start with John Wick 1 in 2014. I'm sure he'd be happy to do some other stuff. You know, think of how brilliant his extended cameo and always be my maybe was, for example. You know, he'll have more time to do other stuff, too. So do I think John Wick is gone for good? I'll say no. But I think he's gone for at least a little bit. But it's a really effective ending. So, like, I don't know how you can be too too mad about it as much as we would love to see John Wick kill more people in a transformative, amazing fashion. It would kind of undo the brilliance of how this movie wraps if, if you did undo this to me. So I think they'll have to think long and hard about how the ballerina spinoff works, how they use Akira in the future and find maybe a new anchor to this franchise whether that's Mr. Nobody or somebody else because it's the movies are that good and that popular like they're going to find a way somehow we know there was a continental tv show as well that was in the mix um so a lot, a lot of tbd but if this was the last i think it's a, a spectacular ending and like i said it's the best wick movie which i still am kind of blown away with how the fact that that's true I mean, shout out Clancy Brown. He's in this movie just kind of as a high table, like operative guy, but it's Clancy Brown. So he's just elevating like a normal ass role because he's really good. Um, that, that was great. Um, trying to think of other stuff like it. Fishburne is fun as the Bowery King. He's barely in the movie. Uh, Ian McShane as Winston, always enjoyable. I, I loved his kind of like verbal uh, tete-a-tetes with the marquee when they happened. Of course, we get Lance Reddick in the beginning of the film. 
um, you know, the concierge to Winston's hotel in New York. And of course, um, Lance Reddick's character gets killed by the Marquis as kind of like penance for penance for Winston helping John in earlier films. Uh, unfortunate symmetry of the fact that Lance Reddick recently uh, suddenly passed um, at the age of, I believe, 60. So that was really tough. Um, but it's kind of like a fitting fitting ending. Like this movie kind of morbidly has a sign-off for uh, a Charon, I believe his character is, for Lance Reddick, where they talk about like what they put on his gravestone and they put friend. And it kind of echoes a lot of the sentiments people have shared about Lance Reddick as a person. Um, so obviously that was a really sad death that happened recently, but this franchise through sheer luck and happenstance handled uh, his death in the, in, as in the franchise really well, honestly. Um, but shout out John with chapter four. I think this is a really spectacular film. And honestly, we've had two really great franchise sequels in March between John with chapter four and Creed three. So I'm quite pleased with that, but yeah, shout out my girl, Rina Salyama. Shout out Donnie Yen. So fucking good in this movie. Let me know, though, what was your favorite aspect about John with Chapter 4? There's so many choices, so can't blame you for having a different thought than me. But let me know, how'd you feel about this movie? What was your favorite moment? And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Succession Season 4. Yes, HBO's flagship drama is back for the fourth and final season. They recently dropped the bomb on us. Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, the creator letting us know that season four is in fact the final season. Honestly, really exciting the way they kind of played, slow played that um, with confirming that. Very exciting. So now this is the final season and I couldn't be more pleased with how season four has begun with the premiere titled The Monsters. I think we're just in for a real treat because I think Succession has demonstrated, you know, HBO, uh, Jesse Armstrong, this writing team, they've demonstrated that this is one of the best shows in recent memory, and there's no reason to have anything but the utmost faith. They're going to absolutely nail this, and we're going to love what they do. You know, season three ended in such amazing fashion with the siblings coming together, the takedown Logan and getting foiled by Logan. Once again, Tom betraying Shiv and the Roy siblings in the process so so satisfying at the end of 2021 so now we're finally back and you know season four just picking up right where we left off i think in a really tantalizing fashion right because succession through three seasons has not been about the siblings being together the siblings have always been apart and that was their way to curry favor with dad curry favor with logan right was to uh you know, stab the others in the back to try and become the number one boy or girl. And it never worked, right? Logan always won. Um, what did Tom say at the end of season three? Um, I've never seen Logan get fucked once. Well, in season four, perhaps we did just witness Logan getting fucked, right? Because the siblings are more powerful and more competent when they're all teamed up. And I think that's a really tantalizing prospect. Now we know Succession will not be smooth sailing through the end of season four. We know things are going to happen. Things are going to go bad. It's a very fluid um, show in terms of how things work. But it's really fun to have them be like a seemingly true adversaries, at least in a certain sense, to Logan at the start of the season. I think that's really cool. Um, also, I think I love how they kind of established um, kind of early uh, conflict, perhaps, where Roman is like genuinely interested in starting a business, whereas 
it seems Kendall and Shiv are much more motivated by sticking it to Logan, sticking it to Dad, and having that personal vendetta. So that surely will come back up later. Um, you know, from there we get the uh, them the siblings. The way they fuck Logan, of course, is by going over the top with their bid to buy Pierce, buy um, you know that that the rival media entity. And going up to ten billion, just really blowing the Logan uh, Waystar bid out of the water. Um, that's cool. That's like establishing um, in terms of plot. Assuming this goes through, we're we're led to believe that the Waystar sale to Gojo is like days away, like two days away, and that's where the siblings are getting their money from when they're going to liquidate their Waystar shares, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I love how the show doesn't make you concerned with like the mumbo jumbo of like how how is all the money coming together who's doing what like you never need to worry about that because it's just communicated in like a clear way that you don't actually have to follow like the minutia of that um and it's funny because i i think what, what really always shines about succession is the writing is just so top-notch whereas this moment of like true plot right the the, the roy siblings sticking it to dad in like a meaningful way with getting peers to accept their bid that is actually not as consequential in terms of dramatic stakes as some of the other stuff in the episode, right? I mean, at the uh, Logan birthday party uh, scene, you know, section of the episode, Logan eventually leaves and goes to a quiet diner with his bodyguard and confides in his bodyguard that he's like his best man, his best mate, because everyone around him at the, at the party is a sycophant, a hanger-on, a yes-man, etc., etc., and he's saying this to his bodyguard, who is only there because he's being paid to be there, right? And that lucid, lucidity, lucidity, and uh, true introspection from Logan, I think, is really fresh, uh, uh, refreshing, as he seems to be quite aware of coming at the end of the a lot of the line and not believing in an afterlife and things like that. It's all really tantalizing. Um, and then in the other big scene, of course, would be. Uh, back in New York, Shiv and Tom meet at their place and talk about their failed marriage. You know, they've taken uh, time apart since um, they obviously were on different sides of the battle battle lines as season three ended. And it's kind of interesting to see them both come to the realization that neither one will ever find someone else who can understand why they're so fucking damaged together and why their marriage is like so fucked and how, what Logan has done to both of them and things like that and how they're going to quote, give it a go, you know, give it another go. It's got it. it it's an emotionally rich uh, scene. And like Tom, uh, Michael McFadden, you know, winning the Emmy for season three, justly earned. He was amazing um, in a show, a show of amazing performers. But like, this is a great episode for why he's so worthy of awards consideration from first succession, because he gives you all the amazing comedy and line readings when he's talking to Greg earlier at the party. And you have like the true emotion and, and deep sadness that is him and his failed marriage and how he feels about his uh, life and what happened to it with Shiv. You know, McFadden is tremendous as, as usual in this episode. Um, we got to think too, like, like we always say that the writing, the writing is so good in succession. Why is the writing so good? Well, it, like I said, it, it handles a lot of the financial stuff in a coherent way. That's always great. But the show is also so fucking funny. Still, I think we had two, three like great 
like all timer like succession like lines throw the throwaway lines half the time and they're just so so good right like early on the Roy sibling idea that they just completely abandon when they realize they have a chance to fuck over dad and and, and go over the top and steal peers from him right their idea is this like new media entity called the hundred and what's the quote Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. Just amazing, amazing stuff right there. And such a Kendall thing, honestly. It fits, fits like a glove. Um, <laughs> everything with uh, Greg and Tom at the party, that was fucking amazing. Them calling each other the Disgusting Brothers. Oh, my God. Uh, Tom dressing down Tom, uh, uh, Greg for his date in like the capacious bag she brought. <laughs> Um, hilarious. And then when Greg uh, tells Tom about some uh, sexual dalliances he just had with his date in the other room, how does he describe that? He says he had a bit of a rummage. And then quickly after, Tom asks if he rummaged to completion. Had a bit of a rummage is, I think, a succession all-timer, like already. Just an amazing thing in there, you know. Obviously, Greg and Tom give us some of the best lines on the course of the show because they're often such a tremendous source of the comic relief on the show you know if it's to be said so it be so it is however the greg quote goes amazing right but i think had a bit of a rummage is another one that's just right up there so fucking good um i really can't wait for the rest of the season we know stewie's gonna come back i think he would have to be involved in the roy siblings getting the rest of the capital needed to buy pierce and this war and how it goes and you know is roman gonna stick with them is he gonna crawl back to logan etc etc i just can't wait you know i have such utmost faith in this creative team and ultimately like assuming this plane gets landed as well as we assume it will be jesse armstrong is up there as like one of the greatest showrunners in like recent memory you know and and that's high praise considering hbo has been the home of tremendous showrunners lately of course right you know think of uh david chase and david milch and uh David Simon, you know, uh, Jesse Armstrong. I think he's quickly rising the ranks, you know. You know, it, he's not a Vince Gilligan yet, but this is, for one show, what he's accomplished, I, I think it's incredibly impressive, and I really can't wait to watch this play out. We know we're going to meet Al- see Alexander Skarsgård again with the Gojo stuff, and the trailers have been very tantalizing without actually revealing much of anything, which is exactly how trailers should be. So I really can't wait. HBO really killing it this year, right? We had The Last of Us become a complete smash crossing over beyond its video game audience, averaging over 30 million viewers an episode. Tremendous success. That's only been gone a few weeks, and now the number one boy is back with Succession, and soon enough, Barry's final season will be back as well. And it turns out Succession season four and Barry season four, those finales will air on the same Sunday night at the end of May. Like, talk about a wild... uh, day for hbo can't wait but let me know how'd you feel about the succession season four premiere what are you most looking forward to seeing play out in this final season and for more tv reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time